Hey everybody, you're listening to Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthaus here in Tucson, Arizona. For this week's show, we're going to do something a little bit different. For the next three weeks, we're going to bring you bite-sized chunks of sciency goodness that'll hone in on how we got to where we are right now, in the middle of the warmest year that humanity has likely ever experienced, and where science says we're headed if we don't get our act together. This week's show will focus on the past, and our all-star expert on paleoclimate, Jacqueline Gill, will help us navigate backwards in our little podcast-powered time machine to place today's planetary-scale changes in context. I know you're all dying to get straight to the science, so let's get going. I'm joined, as always, by Jacqueline Gill in Orono, Maine, and Andy Revkin in the Hudson Valley of New York. Hey, guys. Hey. Howdy. So first up, Jacqueline, lay it out. Um, is it possible that we can know anything at all about the past climate? I mean, you weren't there, right? So how could you ever know what happened back then? That's a, a really painful question. <laughs> um, I don't ever get to see my study system, right? I mean, I, um, I don't, uh, we don't have time machines yet, right? So I can't go you know, look at mammoths or, or glaciers at the end of the Ice Age. So that means that what we end up doing is kind of like what I call um, climate forensics. Uh, so what I mean by that is that instead of a crime scene, I, the work in my lab involves reconstructing a past ecosystem. And the clues that are left behind actually involve a lot of the same tools that forensic scientists use, including things like identifying pollen grains from plants or um, tiny insects that have particular preferences for where they like to live. And so what, what that means is that we have to go into some kind of archive, whether that's um, an ice core or the mud at the bottom of a lake or a cave or something like that, or, or an ancient coral. And all of these archives collect information about the climate and the environment um, anywhere from hundreds to thousands to even millions of years ago. So this is CSI Pleistocene that you're in. Yeah, that's what I'm going to name my lab now, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I love that, um, uh, you know, we have to be actually kind of creative in order to reconstruct the past. Um, we use what are called proxies. So something approximates for something else. So I can't measure the temperature directly with a thermometer in the past, so I have to use a proxy for temperature, like the width of a tree ring or um, the community of tiny algae that live in a pond and only like to live in certain temperatures. So do you work with all of these? I mean, like corals and mud and tree rings and all of it, or do you focus on some specific uh, proxy? I'm mostly a mud girl, um, <laughs> which should not surprise my parents at all. Um, so yeah, I I basically I use cores. Um, it's like I, uh, it's like an ice core, only it's in mud. And the cores that I work with come out of bogs or the bottoms of lakes, or in some cases, um, you know, peat deposits in cold places. And the layers in those um, the layers in the mud each correspond to different periods of time. And the further down you go in the core, the further back in the past you can go. Um, I work with, and I and I know intimately, the other kinds of climate records. So here in the Climate Change Institute, folks do a lot of amazing research on ice cores. And I use that data um, to contextualize the ecology of my systems. Um, and there are strengths and weaknesses to all these proxies. And so it's really important that you become 
kind of fluent in how the data work um, from a, a range of different disciplines. So it's um, what I love about it is that I get to be a little bit of an earth scientist, a little bit of a biologist, a little bit of an archaeologist, and um, I get to play in a lot of different fields, which means not having to commit to anyone. Do you, I have a question for you about, like, what's your, has there been a proxy? Proxies are these indirect uh, measures of past conditions, but has there been like an amazing one that popped up in recent time that that excites you? I know you must always be thinking, is there another one out there? You know, what what are the things you want to see or that you have seen recently that change pictures? Oh, man, I'm always I'm always thinking about this, um, you know, because a lot of times people say, oh, we'll never be able to know about X. Um, and, and, and that's I, I'm never satisfied by that answer. I feel like there's always and Jacqueline's like, ha ha, <laughs> yes, we can know about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Challenge accepted. <laughs> and not to sort of toot my own horn for a second, but one of the examples of that um, is this idea that we've, we, we would never be able to know about, um, we, we would never have a really robust record of when megafauna went extinct um, because we have bones from all these different locations and you know the last dated bone is never the, necessarily the last animal to die. And you know if I, if I go get a, a, a record of the vegetation by counting pollen grains in the mud at the bottom of a lake, I can count to a very high degree of specificity through time, right? I could go down to maybe eight or 10 year increments, which is incredible when you think about the fact that these records might be 10,000, 20,000 years ago. But you know, maybe there's a mammoth that died near there a few hundred miles away, maybe not, but there's certainly not like layers of mam dead mammoths, right, piled up upon each other. Some people who work in caves get those kinds of records, but not me. Um, and so really you're comparing, if you wanna compare, say, what happened with the animals and what happened with the plants, it's very much an apples to oranges comparison. And so I approached my PhD wanting to figure out what the ecological consequences were of the loss of these big animals, um, because we know big animals and their extinctions today have major impacts on ecosystems. So I kind of figured that when you lose, it's like when a mammoth dies in the forest, you know, does anyone care? Um, and in this case, uh, the proxy I ended up working with um, involves a fungus that grows on animal dung. So when you, oh, wow. yeah, when you have a lot of animals, you have a lot of poop. And when you have a lot of poop, that's a, a lot of habitat for this fungus. And the fungus produces lots of spores and they fall into the lake right along with the pollen. So you're able to count pollen grains and spores right next, you know, right in the same samples. So this is an apples to apples comparison that tells you exactly when large ice age herbivores like mammoths and giant ground sloths went extinct and then what happened to the environment immediately afterward like within decades wow so so you are then able you know if there's if the poop goes away then the spores go away and then you time that to what the impact was in the plants at that time that the plants that the, those animals were eating yeah and actually you can tie that also back to what the climate's doing and really drill down and see if the loss of these animals was related to a change in the climate or to some other factor on the landscape, like people. Okay, so does your knowledge degrade over time, you know, the farther back you go? Because these lakes are sort of really amazing, unique places, usually, that there's not a lot of mixing at the bottom of the lake. It's deposited in nice layers, and it's been that way for thousands of years. So these are places that are very special. Um but but what what's your limit? I mean, what what's the farthest back you can go with with mud? Uh, as far back as 
reliably. Yeah, well, uh, well, reliably, um, back to the end of the last ice age, it, for most places, I mean, here in North America, where most of my work is, uh, the vast majority of our, of our lakes are in the north, right? It's no accident that, you know, Minnesota is the land of 10,000 lakes. And those lakes were made by glaciers. And so the record only goes back as far as when the glacier retreated. There are other kinds of lakes made by different processes, but there tend to be fewer of them. And um, they may be anywhere in age from just a, f- a few thousand years to much older. Other parts of the world have much longer um, records in lakes like the African Rift Lakes or in lakes made by you know, impact craters, things like that. Um, but they're, they're much more rare. But the kinds of proxies I work with, like pollen, will persist even in, in hard rock sediment long after the mud turns into rock. And so, you know, you can pull pollen grains out of the rocks that are just above the impact layer uh, from the the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. And the pollen grains look, for all intents and purposes, like like the ones that I work with. Um, That's, it's amazing that, uh, I mean, it's just like, thank you, Mother Nature, for making something so perfect that lasts that long. Yeah, it's the, the pollen is made of the most, this is, I'm going to sound really nerdy for a second. Pollen is made of the most resilient biopolymer known in nature. Spora pollenin. So what does that mean? Uh, it means that you can dump all kinds of crazy chemicals on these pollen grains um, and, you know, really harsh things like hydrofluoric acid that will etch glass and dissolve sand and the pollen grains are fine they're just like hey guys just keep coming at me <laughs> yeah right come at me bro uh the only thing they don't really like is um, oxygen actually so as long as they're you know as long as you don't pour bleach on them or you don't expose them to air for too long um obviously some amount of time is okay because the pollen's like flowing around in the air but um yeah as long as you know as long as they're protected from oxygen for a long time they they last indefinitely yeah so you want to bury it quickly and keep it there yeah Mm -hmm. um so in terms of what you and other people like you have found (laughs) um and you know i was doing a little bit of research to prepare for this um uh, episode and skeptical science, which is one of my favorite websites, the best resource on the internet, as far as I'm concerned, for asking questions like this, um, ranks. Uh, but it's been warmer before as literally the number one meme of climate deniers. So, um, so yeah, so Jacqueline, this is your chance to to just like tear that apart. <laughs> yeah, I get this a lot too. Um, my actually, my favorite is when people who don't actually take a second to look at my Twitter bio are like, don't you know climate changed in the past? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> and when I was in the middle of like my PhD, I was like, that was, that almost killed me. Cause I was like, yes, I know so well it hurts. Um, but um, yeah, so yeah, of course climate's changed in the past. Um, but, but what I like to say is that the, the boundary conditions of the planet were also different, right? I mean, the position of the continents during the age of the dinosaurs was different than today. The, um, the species on the planet, the plants and animals were different than the ones that we have today. All the living things that we have on the planet today are evolved to tolerate a certain range of conditions. And if you try to push them outside of those conditions too quickly, you're going to lose a lot of species. And we've seen that that's happened in the past, right? Some of the biggest mass extinctions on the planet have happened when we have very quickly changed the Earth's climate system. Um, And so I think, 
The important thing to remember is that both the rate of climate change is really important and relevant to these conversations. So how fast are we changing the climate? How fast is that warming or how fast is that drying? Um, and then how much? And so you have to place what we're doing now in the context of those past events. And certainly, you know, some events are very quick, like the asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs and created an impact winter, uh, you know, that, that took place in a day to a few years or decades at most, um, was, you know, would have been the most significant impact, would, would have been immediately after. Certainly, we're changing the climate less than that over a smaller or over a longer time period. Um, but, you know, the fact that the 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 climate's changed in the past doesn't necessarily mean that everything that's alive on the planet today, including our civilizations and our social systems, are able to to deal with that. It's not it's if you know, if there are a bunch of dinosaurs and tree ferns and, um, you know, uh, trilobites hanging out outside, then I would take that argument more seriously. But uh, but there's one thing, even within the happy Holocene that we've spent civilization in, there's been periods that were warmer than today, right? Sure, like medieval warm period, right? Yeah, the medieval optimum. And so, it, you know, not going back to those huge timescales where those arguments really are silly, but it's pretty clear that and, you know, where we're going, which is which uh, Eric will lead a discussion on later in the in the series is another question, but in terms of what the past, these these evidence trails from paleo stuff show that this Holocene uh, epoch has been, had some variability, substantial variability. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but one of the big differences there, though, is the climate w was able, or when climate changed in the past, like during these periods, like, um, you know, events like the medieval warm period, or even the mid-Holocene climate optimum, um, uh, you know, maybe five to eight thousand years ago, you know, these these events didn't affect the entire planet in the same way. Um, they don't necessarily show up everywhere. So the medieval warm period, for example, doesn't show up in all records. Um, and that was the important about thing, a thousand years ago and mostly in Europe. Is that right? Yeah, most of the well, most of the records show evidence of that. There are records that show evidence that it affected vegetation here in North America, but it wasn't a major event. Um the, the important thing, though, to remember is that from the perspective of, say, plants and animals, um, you know, yeah, there's been variability during the Holocene, during, during the last 12,000 years since the end of our Ice Age. Um, but the plants and animals didn't have to contend with a whole bunch of parking lots and roads and other barriers to their dispersal. They, they were able to more effectively track their own climates to get to where they needed to go. Um, in response to those climate changes. Um, and, and, you know, it's, but Andy brings up a really relevant point, which is that, you know, the story is not one of widespread destruction and extinction every time the climate change changes. And I don't want to give that impression, especially by, you know, talking about something like the KT impact. Um, you know, there's a lot of stories of resilience. There's a lot of stories of no change whatsoever. And I think we need to spend more time thinking about those and what might be causing a, a lack of upheaval or turnover. Um, but overall, um, I think what the paleo record can do is contextualize what's happening now by giving us a sense of the range of responses. You know, what kinds of species are more extinction prone and why? What kinds of species um, experience big population booms and busts when we have big changes in climate? And what specifically are they responding to? 
changes in the timing of rainfall and the amount of rainfall, the timing or amount of warming, um, you know, is it winter or summer? So, you know, the work that ecologists are doing today, combined with the work that paleoecologists and paleoclimatologists do in the past, kind of combines to provide really important context. You know, when I like to think of the paleo record as, as letting us know when we need to be worried and when we can kind of back off and just let nature do its thing. The lessons of the paleo record apply in other ways, too, to what to worry about now and, or what to worry about what we should do or not do. There's been these two studies that were incredibly important for me come out of lake beds. You know, as journalistically, they really turned me around. One was uh, 2002, a nature paper by Norin et al. Et al. There was a bunch of lakes that were drilled around the Northeast. And they showed this uh, unbelievable pattern of extreme storms uh, going back thousands of years with some sense that we're heading into a stormier pattern. Um, and it was basically gravel washed down from the hills of Vermont. You, you get sort of mud, 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 gravel, mud, 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 gravel. And every time you had gravel, that was because there had been an extreme flooding event. And that, and, and that, you know, in terms of interpreting today's extremes, it makes you very humble very quickly. The other one was 2009 in uh, this lake that everyone worships in Africa, Basumtwi, I think it's called, in Ghana where Shanahan et al. Uh, drilled there, and they have like an annual record going back several thousand years. And there, the, the, the sobering thing there is, there are 100-year droughts waiting there to happen, 100-year mega droughts, where beyond anything and in, in that's been experienced, um, you know, in modern history going back uh, hundreds of years. And so that's just me going forward, whatever happens with global warming, if you're not attending to the possibility of mega droughts there, it's... Um, then you're missing this, this implicit vulnerability. So th th these these patterns, these these records are really incredible. They're, they're, they're really, really powerful in many different ways. Yeah, I actually grew up swimming in one of the lakes in that Norin story um, in Vermont. So that was a that was pretty powerful for me. Um, I mean, but you talk about 100 year droughts in Africa. I mean, there are records of 1000 year mega droughts in the Great Plains um, or, you know, during the mid Holocene uh, warm period here in New England, some work by Brian Schumann doing similar kinds of studies has shown lake levels in in New England, including here in Maine, dropped um, eight meters at a time when we know the Gulf of Maine was extremely warm as well. And so I think, uh, you know, yeah, so the climate's changed in the past, but one difference between, you know, the Northeast 8,000 years ago and today is uh, a whole lot of people living here um, with very complex systems that aren't terribly flexible. You know, the city of Boston, the city of New York, Portland. That's right. So we better get busy making them resilient. Yeah. So I think the main idea here is that we've always had climate change. Um, we know about what has changed in these past times um, from these really amazing sort of uh, records that nature has laid down for us. And, you know, the real... Um, the real lesson here is that we need to pay attention to this as context for our own period of, of rapid change. And the, the change uh, is, you know, at least at the scale, if not, you know, some studies are saying, you know, up to 100 to 1000 times faster um, rate of carbon dioxide rise, rate of temperature, rise, you know, barring an asteroid strike or something, we are in one of these periods of rapid change right now, um, you know, today. 
um, and and we know that from from these past records. Yeah, I would I would say that you know the the important lessons from the past are one. Well, first of all, we know there's a, a remarkable amount that we can know, it, which may surprise people who aren't familiar with these records. And I'm and I'll I'll be happy to talk about them in in our future episodes. But whether you're talking about you know corals or tree rings or globs of plants stuck together with pack rat urine. Um, there's a remarkable amount that we can tell about past climates from these proxy records that have done so much to contextualize our models and their model predictability and the climate records of the past, how the climate system works, and how life responds. And this, the second thing I would say is that it doesn't even matter if it's the worst or the most the, in terms of warming. The, the important thing is that studying the past gives us some sense of what's coming but what it can't do necessarily is tell us how human societies are going to respond that's going to take you know working with all kinds of other different scientists but in the meantime thank god for pack rat urine right heck yeah i'm so glad that (laughs) i'm so glad pack rats pee and trees grow and mammoths poop pooped past tense yeah pooped (laughs) all right um Thank you, Jacqueline, for this. Um, This has been super interesting for me, I know, Um, and hopefully for everyone else. So um, if you're not already following us on uh, Twitter, we're at Our Warm Regards. And we are um, just on the verge of starting to plan out what we want to do with this amazing um, sort of of community that we're building in this this, uh, podcast. So if you want us to talk about something if you're really really into some some weird uh climate stuff like peck rat urine you know let us know and we will we will talk we will talk about it we will maybe even interview you so thank you thanks for listening and uh we'll see you next time